Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Born in Brittany and brought up in the Loire Valley, Frank Massard made his name as an award-winning sommelier in the UK before moving to Spain in 2004. Acquiring a small vineyard in Priorat changed his life, inspiring him to become a winemaker. Our chat covered his love of Carignan, the affinity he feels with medieval monks, his views on sustainability and the reasons why controlled risks pay off in the vineyard and the winery. Hey Frank, how are you? I'm good, Tim. Nice to speak to you. It's lovely to talk to you and you're lucky man you're in Spain at the moment, in Catalonia, aren't you? Well, yeah, that's where I live, you know, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been here for 23 years now. That's a smart so, move. And t- tomorrow you're going to France, I believe? Tomorrow I'm going to the Rhone Valley. I'm going to uh, catch up with my parents and uh, we're going to visit uh, um, Domaine Combier. Also. I love Domaine Combier in, in Crozemitage. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite Crozemitage. Lucky man. You not only you get to live in Spain, you also get to go to the Rhone Valley to see some good people. Listen, it's good that you're talking about your parents because they really were your way into wine. You know, you were, you were born above a wine shop, as it were. Your parents had a wine shop in the Loire Valley. Can you get, what was your earliest memory of wine? Uh, I probably got drunk when I was eight. At the first time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my parents always, uh, my father was a wine rep. Um, and then my, my mum uh, opened a wine shop. So yeah, at a very early, you know, I started with wine very early, at very early stage. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, I went to, I, I was one, once watching a, a program in France called uh, Incroyable Mais Vrai. You know, incredible but true. And it was these guys that were, so as part of the thing that, were, that they were doing, once it was a, a, a blind tasting. And uh, I was so impressed. I can't remember how old I was, but I was young. That these guys could find a wine blind. That uh, quickly I wanted to uh, to to work in this world and uh, and become a sommelier. Ah. I mean, does the shop still exist or not? Your parents are still alive. No, so. Yeah, my parents are retired now. They've been uh, they retired quite a, a while ago. So yeah, it's no more shops anymore. So, so you didn't think of taking over the shop. Instead, you want to become a sommelier. I mean, how did yeah. you start? Because you went to Germany, didn't you? Yeah, you know, I did my, uh, I went to school, uh, to the catering school and then sommelier school in Saumur and Laval. And uh, one of, uh, an ex-student was looking for uh, someone to uh, to uh, to work with him in Germany. And uh, so they contacted me. And at that time I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to another country. I didn't, sp- I was uh, 20 years old. I didn't speak German, but uh, off I went there. It was a great, uh, a great sommelier. Uh, we're still very, uh, we're still very close. And, uh, so that was a, a great, uh, great first experience. You know, I started, uh, competition with him. It was, uh, although my German was, you know, I had to really learn from scratch. Uh, yeah, I arrived in Germany. I had to learn how to say the vintage, how to present a bottle. And that's all I could do at the beginning. And All uh, in German, right? All in German. Yeah. <laughs> so I did intense course in the morning and then I was, uh, then I was working. I did for a couple of years, 
Uh, and where were you in Germany? I was in uh, Frankfurt. In a really top restaurant, yeah? I was in a very good restaurant. And my, my boss worked in a three Michelin star restaurant. So he had uh, two wine clubs in, um, in Stuttgart and Munich. So Andy would take me everywhere. So I would go, uh, you know, every time off, we would go together and go to uh, some uh, uh, tastings together. And was, the, was that the first time you'd actually worked in a restaurant as opposed to being at school in Saumur? Uh, it was my first job as a as sommelier. You know, I worked in a restaurant weekends and uh, I worked in Deauville as a waiter. Uh, I worked a little bit as a chef, uh, but as a, as a sommelier, that was my first... Uh, well, no, I worked in Evian before that. As a, I did a trainee in Evian, strange place for a sommelier. <laughs> Better known for water. Right? Yeah. yeah, but it was a palace. It was a great experience. And then, then I then I had this uh, job offer in Germany, and then I moved to Germany. And then, then you moved to England after two years in Germany, and you went yeah. and worked under the amazing, great friend of both of ours, Gérard Besset, who we both miss a lot, really, yeah. who became the world champion later in 2010. I, I just wonder what you learned from Gérard, because he brought he gave a lot to a lot of people. He was an amazing teacher, wasn't he, as well as an amazing human being. Yes, well, you know, Tim, actually, uh, Gerard was, uh, we were very close. I was, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Romani's godfather. So we are. Romani is his son. Yeah. His son. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, you know, I, he was like a, he was like a spiritual father for me. So, and you know, Gerard was a character. If he, if he liked you, he would give you a, a lot. Uh, so I'm one of his, what they call now protege. We still have a, kind of a group on a WhatsApp and we, we catch up from time to time. Uh, so he was an amazing man. And, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I learned from him amazing discipline. And I think that, uh, the, the goal, you know, is sometimes I, you know, because we were talking quite regularly and he would say to me, uh, you know, after, because, you know, he didn't win the first time the world championship and he would have asked me, Frank, what do you think? And I said, you know, you don't need to do it anymore. People think you are a world champion already. You've been twice, you've been second, you've been European champion, you're master of wine, master sommelier, you have everything. But he still had a goal in his head and he would not, he would not listen to anyone. He went to all the way. He never so, gave up, did he? He never gave up. So I think that's the, you know, that's what you keep from a man like that. And I think the great... Uh, these great uh, mentors are, uh, you know, they, they give so much also because they're not scared of that. They've got amazing knowledge. And, and for them, if they've got, they've got a kid that uh, is, uh, is asking for more, they, they, they like that challenge. Yeah, and, and I think the great thing about him was he, he, he always had time for everybody. I mean, maybe not, pe maybe not people who've beaten him in the final, but, yeah. <laughs> but I think, he, yeah. you know, he was, lots of stories of people said to me, oh, I wrote to him and I never thought he'd write back, but he sent me back a page-long email, you know, with yeah. information. You know, he, he was lovely in that respect, I think. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, he, also, he was amazingly uh, quick in responding to anything. Uh, yeah. You sent him an email or he was always, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, he was very French in a way, but he had also this, uh, you know, he would pick me up at a train station. He was, yeah, amazing man for me. Yeah. Amazing man. I mean, partly inspired by him, you started doing more competitions, although you'd started a bit in Germany. And yeah. you won the title of the best sommelier in the UK in 1996. And yeah. it sounds like you were kind of set for a long career working in restaurants. I mean, what, what, what made you good at your job, do you think, in those days? Well, one thing, so I love competitions. So I think... 
I, I learned a lot, you know, with Gerard and my, my ex-boss from Germany uh, about the wine region from the world. But uh, I think being a good sommelier is almost like a psychologist. You know, it's, it's a lot about um, reading the customer need, being attentive to what they need. It's not about having fantastic knowledge. It's good to have the knowledge, but, uh, you know, often they, f- they think that uh, French sommeliers are cocky, and a lot of them are. Uh, and, uh, and for me, what was important is that they come once, I give them the best possible advice, and when they come back, they say, just frankly, take the wine list, you do it for me. Not, never try to give them a, a wine that is too expensive or just read on that day who they are with, what is their budget, and give them, the, give them a nice story. And if they're not there for you that day, they don't have much time, you should just go away. Mm. This is for me what a job of sommelier. My, my ex, the last place I worked for at the Orrery, he's also a, still a very close friend now. Mm. He said, the sommelier is the PR. You know, I, I was there to greet the customer because sometimes the, the maitre d' doesn't have the time. Mm. So I was there greeting them, helping to sit them at a table. We're there for a service, you know, it's hospitality. I think that's very important that we are there t- for them to have a good time, not for us to show our knowledge. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Good and idea. then, and then, yeah, we have a, a knowledge that they usually don't have. Some are sometimes extremely knowledgeable. So always talk to the customer with respect and, and yeah, and make them, you know, as a good summary, you should be finding wine from different regions and uh, have a story for each of the wine you have on your wine list. Yeah. As much as you can. Yeah. But then, you know, you were very successful at that, but then you gave it up, right? You stopped uh, and you yeah. moved to Spain to went to work for Torres, famous uh, company in Catalonia. Had you always had this kind of feeling for, for Spain, this affinity for Spain? Well, I didn't have that much, to be honest. You know, it was I was in competition. Mm. I, I knew Torres because I had been there a few times. Mm. At that time, I was offered a job for Rina, Champagne, and, uh, and Torres uh, through a, a very close friend of mine. He said to me, you know, uh, he was working for Torres as a brand ambassador, taking chefs from Spain and sometimes musicians and uh, traveling the world representing uh, Torres. And I thought, well, Torres, they got a, a broad range of wine. So it's going to be more fun than just having a, 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 just showing a champagne. And if I don't like it, I go back to UK because I was, you know, I was very happy in UK. I was there for seven years as a sommelier. I had my, you know, my friends, my, I was I was happy, but I thought, okay, I'll give it a, um, and you know, I'm from Brittany. I, I, I worked in, a, in, in Frankfurt. Then I was in England. So for me, bad weather was a normal thing. <laughs> uh, but when I arrived in Spain, it was like, oh my God, that's like holidays. You know, it's, uh, it was, uh, from serving customers and standing up all day. Uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, sitting with customers um, you know, I, I, I put on like, uh, 15 kilos in one year. Actually. And in the sunshine, you were doing it in the sunshine. I was in the sunshine and, <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because then I was on the other side Yeah, and I could, and I, for me, it was another, um, I was a bridge between the commercial people and the technical and people. The, interesting. I mean, was your plan always to make wine or did that just come later? No, that came later. I thought, you know, making wine is for, uh, People uh, that have a, a family background with a vineyard, and uh, you know, I thought that, that would never happen to me. But uh, yeah, I had an opportunity with a friend 
Because I was studying also, I was, you know, I keep studying for the Master of Wine also. Um, and I felt that for me to understand, I have to make it. Mm-hmm. I have to, I have to be in a, in a, touch it with my hands. Because, you know, I read so many books about viticulture, winemaking, and, and so on. And it's not the same thing, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you bought this three hectare vineyard in Priorat, which has become your yeah. speciality. And is it true you bought it from a taxi driver? How did that happen? Yeah, well, you know, I was looking at Monsan, Priorat, and, uh, and uh, talking to the to the people in a the village, uh, there was a, a, a taxi driver that happened to have a, a this small plot with a hut. So with my friend, we thought, well, there's that hut. We could convert it in 70 square meters. We could convert it into a winery. There's uh, three hectares, one hectare planted. It's nice for us to, you know, we will invite our friend. We will practice. It was a hobby, you know, there was no business plan or, of course, you know, it was just uh, something aside from Taurus, just as a, as a, yeah, practicing, having fun, really. And the first wine you made was, what, 500 bottles called Weyas, yeah, which is yeah. Footprints, yeah? You released that in 2007. I mean, were you looking to sell it or were you just having fun, really, and practicing, do you think? Yeah, I think we were having, f- well, we thought, okay, 500 bottles was already a bit too, too many for us to drink. So we thought we sell a few to some of our friends. Uh, that's what we did. You know, we just sold uh, a few bottles and uh, kept, uh, well, actually, we I don't have anything left. Uh, of course, you know, it's. Uh, well, of the first vintage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it made a bit of a stir, didn't it? I mean, because people knew you, obviously, and, and people yeah. started talking about it and it was pretty good, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, we bought the vineyard in 2004. Mm. Uh, 2005, 2006, that was not so good. Uh, in, in 2007, where we, we actually understood better the winemaking, because, you know, being a sommelier is one thing, making wine is another. So you had uh, two bad vintages where you didn't release the wine. Yeah, and plus, if you're a sommelier, you have a certain standard. <laughs> I, I couldn't show my wines to my friends if I wasn't pleased with the wine. So, so yeah, the first two vintages, we just... Uh, well, yeah, we we just uh, drank it. Uh, <laughs> Not down then, the sink, right? Yeah. <laughs> in 2007, we made, a, we made a pretty good wine, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, in 2008, you released a second wine called Humilitat Humility, which yeah. is a lighter version of Priorat, and you bottled it under a screw cap, which is pretty pretty brave, I mean, um, and radical. What did they think? I mean, it didn't sound that humble to do that in Priorat. They must have thought, who is this lunatic from outside sort of doing something different? How did it go down? Well, you know, it's... Um, it, um, we, we were already selling mainly to uh, UK. Yeah. So for us in UK, screw cap was a normal thing. At that time, you know, there was no Coravin. Mm. So it was actually very practical in sense of, uh, you know, if I had to send my wine to a wine fair or just send one bottle, not two or three, because there's no problem with corks. Yeah. The thing is, um, it was kind of uh, shooting myself in a, in a toe because, uh, uh, people, um, yeah, they, what I didn't realize if you're in a classic region and you use crew cap, so the customer that, that normally take, uh, this kind of wine, they're not used to screw cap, mm. but in the UK it was, it was well received. So I, it was kind of a single market wine at the time. Okay. Yeah. And it had a great label, didn't it? And, and are you still yeah. making it? Yeah. I'm still making yeah. it. Yeah. I, I like that wine. I think it's fun. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and it was, uh, and then he actually I sold it to in Singapore and other yeah. markets. He, yeah, he developed well uh, because now screw cap is more of a normal thing. 
Listen, I mean, tell us about Priorat. We'll talk about, you make wine in other regions as well. Priorat is your focus. Yeah. Um, it's a very historic region. Tell us a little bit about the history, but also about the different terroir and maybe why it's different from Monsanto. Can you do that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, Priorat means priory because he was actually the, the, the Carthusian, Carthusian monks that uh, that uh, established in a, in a Priorat. They, they started in a, in a village of Poboleda where, where I am established now. Mm. And, uh, and from there, they moved to Scala Dei uh, to start the, their monastery. In Scala Dei, the famous monastery, you can still visit. Amazing ruins, aren't they? I mean, yeah. stunning place. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so they were ruling the, the, the Pirat, uh, the region. And, you know, the monks always have a understanding of, uh, I think, of uh, the, the best uh, region to make wine mm. and, uh, and how to make wine. So I think, and they, so they developed it. There were some uh, great years. They already, I, I saw some, uh, some uh, literature about uh, Pirat, uh, some of the re- villages that were already, or the top of the mountain that were already understood that was better. Because the cheaper wine from the valleys, they were actually made as, um, how do they call it? Um, uh, vermut. Really? They no, turned they into was... vermut? So even yeah. the, monk, the monks knew that the slopes were better yeah. than the valley floor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was a huge market for vermouth. They were sent to uh, Reus, uh, and they were so they were making wine, vermouth, and and the, and the greatest wine from the from the from the what they call costels, you know the the costels of the slopes or the terraces, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, you know it's the, what they call costels is actually it's not like terrace; it's yeah. actually like a slope. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit about the terroir and 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 uh, it's very Mediterranean, isn't it? You're close to the coast, and it it, it feels like a Mediterranean place. Yeah, I think it's a it's definitely a Mediterranean uh, climate. But the particularity of uh, of Pirat for me is two things. You know, when we talk about terroir, the soil that uh, schistous soil, Licoreia, yeah, Licoreia, yeah, because it has a great drainage capacity. Mm. And it's a very poor soil in uh, organic matter, so we uh, we have low yielding vineyard and uh, and as a result, usually higher quality. Mm. And then the climate. Um, I think from south of what I've realized is that I started in a village of El Mola, which is the southern part of uh, Priorat, mm. and it's like two degrees warmer than Poboleda where I am now. Mm. So within Priorat, there's a because it's a mountainous region. Mm. Uh, from the south to the north, there's uh, very significant uh, differences. And if you are in a further north and higher in altitude, uh, you've got more contrasting temperature during the day and the night. Yeah. So the wines of Pirat have a quite low pH, a good acidity. Mm. This is for me what makes Pirat uh, special as a region. And, and historically, Garnacha was planted, and I think Carignana, Carignan, yeah? yeah. Um, but now you can find other varieties, particularly Bordeaux varieties and, and Rhone, other Rhone varieties, can't you? What, what are the percentages? Do you know roughly? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I don't well, remember. But uh, Pirat after, is what two thousand hectares or something like that. It's two thousand hectares. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's um, uh, there's more Grenache for sure, Garnacha, mm. and a lot of the uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, has been uh, field grafted, up, grabbed up, and and also the Merlot because the Merlot was the worst uh, variety there. Really didn't work there, really. Uh, but you know, uh, in the 1980s, people were paying the more for Cabernet and Merlot, so the people planted Cabernet and Merlot. 
But now, yeah, that's changed. People and now know. they're going back to Carignan yeah. and, and, and Garnacha. Yeah, well, that, those those are the traditional Mediterranean grape varieties, really, aren't they? Yeah, they, they, they're the one that works best. I must admit that uh, in my vineyard, uh, there was Shira planted, and uh, so I've kept it, and, uh, and, I, and I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, in 2020, had a, we had a massive issue with uh, mildew, the Syrah was the one that uh, gave me the best uh, the best results. I mean, it's interesting. We'll talk in a minute about the wines you make with other people in other bits of Spain. But I just wonder, which grape varieties do you like working with most? Is it those classic Mediterranean grapes? Yeah. Uh, and for me, the most uh, the most amazing is the Carignan. Mm. Because it's, uh, I know, it's, it's a grape that sometimes is doesn't give you aromas, it can be a bit rustic. And, uh, but I think sometimes in the Priorat, there's a floral character that you are like, wow, uh, where's that come from? And the low alcohol, you know, a fresher finish, a longer aftertaste. Um, so I find it much more uh, difficult to tame, but on the other hand, the, the, the most exciting one. And it has less alcohol and more acidity than Grenache, does it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're quite good together as well, aren't they? And yeah, they, 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 they work very well together because aromatically they, they have a similar profile. Yeah. But also, you know, the Carignan is reductive and the Garnacha is, is more oxidative. Yeah. So they are also interesting to blend. Yeah, Garnacha is more oxidative, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Um, do you, I mean, you work with wines from or producers in other regions of Spain, which you started in 2009. This is a part of your business called Epicure Wines, yeah? yeah. Uh, and you call these, I think, wines with attitude and sometimes altitude as well. But how many different regions do, do you work in? Well, it's uh, I've started that project in 2009. Uh, you know, I went to Galicia. I went to Ribera Sacra, uh, Rias Beixas, uh, looking for higher uh, vineyards. Uh, to make this wine that were lively because that's what I like in wine. I like this verticality. Uh, but uh, today, actually, I've stopped this project because uh, I've uh, I wanted to really focus on uh, on Catalonia, mm. where I'm closer. Because I mean, you know, there are flying winemakers that I admire. They make wine so many different places in a, uh, in the world. But uh, for me, to really understand, I've, I've been making wine for twenty years. Uh, which is nothing, you know, because uh, if if you if I was somebody, it's like if I did twenty services, you know, it's uh, you know it's not that much practice, um, and uh, and I'm, the closer I get to the vineyard, understanding the biodiversity, talking with the agronomist, my naturalist, trying to understand what's surrounding me, and I I affect the the, the quality of the wine, trying to be more, uh, you know, in the past I was. Uh, I would buy a selected yeast. Now we work with spontaneous yeast mm. because conceptually it's like, if I'm trying to be as natural as possible, trying to, you know, we've, uh, we did, um, how do you call it? Uh, inventory of our fauna, flora. Uh, we try to understand how all these things uh, get together and how can we as human, um, uh, I know you, you like, uh, you take, you, you're a f- uh, photographer also. Yeah. And for me, you know, making one is like, it's like taking a picture of what you have in a vineyard. Mm. And, uh, and the most beautiful one is like, if you don't use filter, you know, it's all there, but there's so many details that as human, we don't see it. 
And it takes time to, you know, just to prune a, a vine. From a sommelier, you don't know how to prune a vine. You don't, you know, we learn a lot. Of I don't food. either. Wine writers are the same, and we've got no idea. Yeah, and to get yeah. the eyes to, be, to understand what's a good vineyard that is well attended, mm. for me, it takes years to really just uh, change your, your vision and uh, understand that whatever you do has an effect because it's nature. You plant grapes, mm. there will be, I mean, you plant vines, you get grapes, it's sweet, you will attract certain type of fauna. You will make get in trouble, and you need to find that balance all the time. <laughs> but it's interesting because you, I mean, you said that to make great wines, one must take risks in the vineyard, in the winery. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what you're talking about, really, isn't it? It's it's learning to be a bit more relaxed with things like you know indigenous yeasts and and, and, yeah. and maybe not to be quite so controlling in the winery. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, you know, uh, in the past um, we use sulfite at the beginning of the harvest as uh, they do. You know, you bring the grapes in. You add some sulfite. The idea is that you wipe out some of the bacteria. You make place. You make you know for the for the yeast. But what we've realized is when we did some trials is that the grapes that we bring, you know, it's all uh, hand picked in a perfect condition. So there's no bacterial uh, contamination. Mm. So one year we start to increase the batch, and now the whole winemaking is uh, when the grapes come in, we don't use uh, sulfite. Mm. I use sulfite only after the malolactic. Yeah. I use spontaneous uh, uh, yeast. That's the kind of, uh, for me, it's controlled risk. Controlled, not- controlled risk. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. For me, it's like... It's not like we, jumping out of a plane without a parachute, is it? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, saying, oh, I'm in a nature, I'm in a boat, and I just let the boat go. Well, you, you end up in a rock, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about sustainability is important to you as well in the vineyards. And can you just say what it means to you? Is there a human element to it as well? Well, a human element is that, you know, we, a vineyard is only natural. It's not that natural. We plant grapes into a, a place. And uh, I think for me, the concept of sustainability and being uh, regenerative is to understand as much as possible that uh, environments and how can you find that uh, equilibrium? Mm. This is for me, you know, like we make our own uh, biochar. Uh, so that's a way, that's one of the best way to sequester the, the carbon. Mm. Uh, then, uh, but we mix it with the compost and we bring it because when you make wine, you take the, you take the grapes from the vines. It's like emptying the fridge and you need to refill it. Mm. So you need to bring some compost. Mm. Um, I've got some, uh, We've uh, built some uh, ponds for amphibians. Uh, we're trying to recreate as much as possible of the vegetation mm. for the pollinating insects. Yeah. It's to try to, uh, and accept that you may lose some of it sometimes, you know, like uh, I put straw in the vineyard. And uh, at the beginning, visually, we could not see if it makes any effects in the quality on, in, uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the soil. Mm. But uh, by uh, chromat- uh, chromatography, we managed to see that it has an effect on the biodiversity underground. Interesting, yeah. So, so it's, it's, you're creating a biosphere in a way, are you? Yeah, yeah. And you know, and sometimes you, so you you notice that, but uh, then uh, when I speak to the people in the farm, they say, yeah. <laughs> uh, then the the wild boar actually attacking this part because they also know that there's more insects under the straw than the, the other vines. Mm. 
So it's, yeah. it's, it's you know it's it's interesting because you you keep observing and understanding and learning in the process. It's interesting what you said about your your eyes need to understand a vineyard really. Yeah. Yeah. Tell t- t- us a little bit about. Priorat again. It's got this classification system, which is quite Burgundian. You know, it's got generic wines, village wines, the equivalent of Premier and Grand Cru. Do you think it's something that other regions of Spain could follow? When Bierzo's done it, again, I think the probably the influence of Alvaro Palacios in both regions. Yeah. Is that something that could happen in other regions? I mean, I think it would be useful in, in Rioja and, and Rivera as a start. Yeah, I think it will happen with time. You know, I think sometimes, you know, uh, Comparing with France, France has been established for a much longer time, making quality wine. As you know, Spain was a, a world of, uh, it was very poor and it was close to the rest of the world. Mm. So it was dominated by uh, cooperatives mm. and uh, big wineries and uh, this like in Rioja. So when you blend everything, then you don't find the, the, the specific terroir. Mm. But when you start to have independent growers, that can pay more attention. Oh, I'm in that village. Oh, it's different to the village next door. Mm. We can feel it. Mm. And uh, and then you can feel it, but then you need to learn how to make wine being respectful. You know, I've seen it after 20 years in Priorat. To, to express it, yeah. To express it. At the yeah. beginning, there was no expression because they were all using really nice New York and, uh, and picking very late. Mm. So the wines were all very, very ripe. Mm. But when you start to be a bit more, I see it in 20 years, more and more producers being more respectful, uh, then you start to to feel the difference in the different vineyards. I think it makes a lot of sense. So it's happening. It will take time. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it makes sense. Ojalá. Let's hope so. But I mean, in 2018, you became co-owner of Clo Salanca, which is again yeah. in Priorat. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about this site and the wines that you make there. Well, Closaranca is uh, so it's the, the the vineyard that we acquired with uh, my friend uh, David Forer, who's a, who's a master of wine. He's a master of wine, and yeah. uh, we are yeah we are a very close uh, friend. Also, very interesting uh, uh, because you know he's more he was in more uh, as more scientific uh, background uh, into statistics, but he's a very fun person too, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he loves food like me. And I think it's very important when you make wine that. Uh, you know, you, you must be uh, Epicurean. Mm. Um, so we acquired this uh, vineyard that uh, I was purchasing grapes from that vineyard, so I knew it. And it was in that village that I always wanted to uh, to be in Poboleda. So uh, it's in Poboleda. Um, it's a vineyard where we have uh, slopes, where we've got really good Carinena, then uh, we've got another Carina uh, on the terraces uh, where I can make now uh, Humilitat, for instance. So from the best sites, and, and there it's very clear, you know, visually you can see this is better than there. And then when, when we get the production, it's also very clear. Mm. So I can make Closalanca as a, my uh, today's our top wine. Uh, which is uh, one is 100% uh, Carignan, and the other one is uh, a, a blend of Grenache and Carignan, about 50-50. Interesting. I mean, I love the fact that you talk about it being embracing the past, but looking to the future. So you're referring really to the monks in a way, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, that's the grapes that they were using, The uh, you know, as we said, not using uh, new oak, um, 
that knowledge of the vineyard. Um, but I think also for us, it's uh, I I like science also. I think for me, it's uh, if I want to take risk using low SO two, for instance, I need to do I need to do analysis. So I need to do I need to make sure that my vines are in balance. So I need to do soil analysis. I need to bring the compost. As, you know, it's it's like a garden. I need to look after it very well to bring it and. Uh, you know, what are the risks? Uh, bacterial spoilage, oxidation. So I know I shouldn't open the, I, I need to top up the barrel regularly. So I can work with less sulfite, but I'm very careful at uh, the what, the critical points. You, 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 it's that controlled, that's controlled risk again you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, you've also got an olive oil project, I think, of using olives from trees that are over, what, a thousand years old? They're called millenarios, yeah? Yeah. Um, just tell us quickly about that. Yeah, well, it's a, a, a beautiful project too because uh, I was making olive oil from uh, Monsanto and then I was asked to, uh, you know, I was looking for other olive oil, maybe uh, from uh, organic and different varieties of olive oil. And I find in a newspaper once there was uh, uh, some guys that had some uh, uh, trees that were over a thousand years of age. And I thought, you know, coming from the wine world, a vine that is 100 years old is, is amazing. But a tree that is over a thousand years, it's, it's just like, uh, it's a monument. It's, and I've seen pictures of it with, with it's called like got crutches underneath the tree to hold up the branches. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they, they are, they are massive there. And some are like 2000 years old. So you wow. think, what can you think of that is a living organism yeah. that is so old and still giving you fruits? That's I can't think of anything. Can you? Hmm? I can't think of anything. No, me, me neither. I mean, I'm asking. <laughs> I still can't think of anything else that uh, apart from these trees, and uh, and they make high quality uh, olive oil on yeah. top of it. And you're selling uh, that through Naked Wines, aren't you? Uh, yes, I've got a little batch uh, with Naked Wines. Yeah, good. I'm going to buy some of that. Definitely sounds really <laughs> good. But it sounds very good. Just tell me quickly: is there anywhere else in the world you'd like to make wine? It looks as if you're more and more focused on Catalonia. But let's just dream yeah. for a second. Where would you like to make wine? If 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 they just somebody gave you ten million pounds and said, "Off you go, go and buy a vineyard." Uh, maybe Cotroti, you know. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I think I could afford probably Cos Hermitage rather than Codroti, <laughs> and then it wouldn't be a very big parcel. Uh, if I get if I get ten million, I think I'd probably get something. <laughs> I think you would. <laughs> yeah, well, because I love uh, I love that um, fragrance of uh, this uh, of the Syrah from there, and uh, uh, yeah, I just uh, think that. Uh, well, the last latest vintage also had some issues, uh, but uh, in general, you you're not. I'm not disappointed when I have a, a good cotroti. Yeah, uh, and mm. it's interesting you describe yourself as a sommelier turned vigneron, although you're a businessman as well. Is there a bit of you that misses the old life? Do you ever think, oh God, sometimes I, I you know, I really enjoyed being a sommelier. I enjoyed the contact with people on the floor. Do you ever think, oh, I miss miss those days a bit? Yes, but I won't do it again. You know, I just, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I enjoy like, you know, my wife, my, they see my, my, my partner, David, uh, he sees me in a restaurant. He can, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like in a, in my water. I'm, uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And sometimes I've been doing some, uh, events where I was, uh, the winemaker doing the service. Oh, and, uh, good. I'm back, you know, I'm, uh, and now at my age, they think I'm the owner. So I'm like, uh, so yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And once you've got those techniques, presumably you never forget them, do you? Yeah, you know, it's it's a, 
what I was saying about the ice in a vineyard. Yeah. Well, in a restaurant, because I, I, I worked at that level as sommelier, yes, you, you never forget that. It's interesting. So that there's a similarity in a way, and, it, and a lot of it is, is looking, learning to look, yeah? Yeah. You know, we learn to listen to people, no? And we have to learn to, uh, uh, yeah, I think to adapt your uh, vision, see the beauty in things. I think, you know, when, we, when you become a professional in uh, wine, it's like, uh, you know, I'm not good at music, but I, I explain to people, it's like, I, when I taste wine, there's a lot of things that are happening in my mind. I, uh, so we, yeah, we develop that sense that uh, you only developed it with practice. Yeah, so you, you're listening to a vineyard as well as looking at it, yeah. and, you, and you're listening to a wine as well as well as tasting it. I think that makes sense. I understand that. You know, when I was uh, first time I brought a naturalist in my vineyard in 2017, we were. I wanted to understand the fauna that I had, not the flora, just understand the flowers that I have and so on. And I was with him and he kept telling me, oh, you've got this type of bird. I'm like, I don't hear anything. So I learned with this guy to hear, hear yeah, what's happening in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's being alive to the natural world, isn't it, around us? Yes, definitely. It's, uh, and this is what always I found amazing in the world of wine is that, you know, you learn about the biology, the, the chemistry, uh, and the marketing. You know, it's, it's all, uh, it's all uh, super interesting. Mm-hmm. But maybe we learn less about nature, do you think? What do you mean, learn less about we nature? Le- we, when we're learning about wine, a lot of it's focused on tasting and, and uh, yeah. you know, all those things. And we don't really spend that much time. And you were saying that you were a sommelier. You didn't yeah. know how to prune a vine. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a wine writer. Uh, and I, I'd have trouble pruning a vine well, too. I mean, I kind of know yeah. roughly what to do, but I'm sure I'd do it very badly. Yeah, because it's very hard to project yourself. You know, what you cut is going to grow in the future. Mm. And uh, yes, yes, I think it's my my uh, life changing from being a sommelier to being a, a vigneron is uh, is yeah is that uh, being far closer to the nature. You yeah. know, uh, when we talk about global warming, all yeah. these issues, also I'm I'm far more uh, uh, you know conscious of the of the risks. Yeah. Last question, quick one is how do you get away from wine? I mean, you said you're not a musician, but you play the guitar a bit, don't you? I think. No, no, there's a guitar there, but it's not. Uh, no, I, I, I it's decoration. To, I was, I was playing with my son, but I put my. Uh, no, no, what I do is uh, so I love watching my son playing basketball. I've got also two daughters that I love to uh, spend time with, and uh, and I'm a and I love table tennis. Uh, I'm 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 competing in table tennis whenever I have time. Ah, so, so the love of competition, that you were very good sommelier uh, in competitions, never goes away, right? So you're still competing, but you're doing it with a bat rather than a glass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite addicted. You know, when I travel in the world, you know, when I was younger, I would go, I would go to discotheques. And uh, now I just found a club and I play. I played in uh, China. I played in Japan. I play everywhere. <laughs> That's brilliant. Listen, Frank, it's been fantastic talking to you. Lovely to catch up. It's been too long. Uh, and I hope to see you very soon, either in Spain or in the UK or maybe in France, in the Rhone Valley. Absolutely. Very nice talking to you too, Tim. See we you. Catch up in England. Otherwise. It's, it's got, you're, I've got a bottle of Coke Roti waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Frank was a great sommelier. He learned from the best, but he seems to have found his true vocation as a Spanish vigneron. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is another equally fascinating sommelier turned winemaker, Raj Parr from Sandy and Domaine de la Côte in California. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.